Let's, uh, let's do a, a quick recap of where we've been on the, um, uh, as we've been looking at the issue of fear. And what we're doing is um, looking at these issues from four different perspectives. So in the first week, uh, we had uh, Josh and Freya took us to the musical Hamilton, and we talked about our, how fear drove the rather remarkable story of, um, of, of Hamilton and um, a guy who was driven by the fear of death and the fear of not having a life of any significance. And because, and in fact, that kind of drove him in a, in a positive way to seek out to have a worthwhile life and to have an impact on the biggest issues of injustice of his, his time. Um, the, uh, the song that, um, that Josh mentioned, um, I'm Not Going to Waste My Shot, captures that sentiment of not wanting to miss the opportunity of a life with some kind of impact. Um, but Freya also shared with us how merely wanting to have impact doesn't necessarily take us to the right place, that we can be wrongly driven by that fear of death to have a significant life, um, when in fact, no matter how big the moment that we live in or the contribution we make, um, you know, we all at best will be merely a footnote in history. I remember being struck at the age of 14, visiting the, one of the courts in the Old Bailey, um, and uh, seeing this, um, it's kind of like in the middle of the, of the um, uh, temple court there, and it's, it's a tombstone on the ground of this guy who was the wealthiest guy in, in England, in sort of 1100s, late 1100s, and it struck me, and it said sort of something like, you know, he owned third of England or something, and it struck me how, I mean, not even a footnote of history, just a, just a scratching on a bit of stone, and, and he was obviously a big, big guy in his time, um, but uh, merely being driven by the fear of death doesn't necessarily uh, lead us to a, a, a rich and flourishing life, and Freya shared how really the fear of death is a good thing to drive us into larger questions of significance and our relationship with God. The following week, um, Graham took us uh, onto the high seas as we heard the stories of um, uh, a, a crew who were driven by their fear of um, when they were forced by a large whale, forced to jump overboard into their sort of lifeboats. Um, and because they were scared of going to an island that they thought had cannibals on it, they decided to avoid that island and go somewhere else in search of the trade ships. And in the end, that decision meant that they didn't get to safety and they ended up becoming cannibals themselves. But the larger point that Graham was making was that, the, that fear sometimes can actually be our friend. It's not always a bad thing to have fears because the fears that we have can reveal to us the things that we most value, the things that we most worry about losing. Um, and I, I'm going to pick up on that point a little in the uh, things I say in a moment. Um, and then last week, Jono took us on the um, uh, tour of the biblical story of Joshua, um, who is well known as a biblical story because he's often told, do not be afraid, do not fear. Uh, and the point that Josh was making was that if you think about the moment at which Joshua in his life is given that message, it's actually the moment when he's facing the greatest uncertainty, the greatest threat, as he's told to move into um, and, and, and claim the land for Israel. And his point was that often the moment, it's effectively going through our fears that's often necessary for us to realise the promise of God in our own lives.
Today, the fourth week, we look at the larger social implications um, for the topic that we're looking at, so the topic of fear. So how it relates to the role of Christians um, in bringing the rule and reign of God into the world, um, how it relates to the themes of us being salt and light in the world, how it relates to social transformation. And I'm going to relate it to um, some work that I've been doing for the last year or so around, actually, it really is fundamentally about the issue of fear, but it began as a project looking at attitudes um, across European countries towards refugees and, and immigration. Um, so I'm going to jump in first by talking about the, the sort of rising tide of fear that we're experiencing. I want to talk about what happens when communities get gripped by fear, as is happening in our world right now, and across the developed world we're seeing that happening. I'm going to talk about who's winning from that, who's benefiting and who loses. Um, I want to say a few things about how religious communities and Christian communities uh, tie into this, because I think we're seeing in some places Christians being duped by that culture of fear. Uh, and I want to contrast that with the other side of many things that we're hearing, which is the opposite, people who are who are beating fear with love and, and the role that I believe we're called to have in a time of rising fear um, as partly the antidote, the answer to, to that culture of fear. Um, so let's jump into um, the, uh, a couple of slides um, that I've got. Now, the background to these slides is that um, we're doing some research organisation I'm with we're in the process of setting up an organisation to get a better understanding of what's driving the very strong rising anti-immigrant and anti-refugee sentiment that we've seen across Europe and, of course, now in the United States under Donald Trump. The really interesting thing is to understand how much this is driven by fear and how much it's driven quite deliberately by amping up a sense of anxiety about other people who aren't like us, don't seem to share um, our looks or our backgrounds or our values, um, and more specifically, the work that we're doing is we're breaking down the population in different countries. So we've got a couple of slides um, we'll show now. The first is in Germany and the next one is in France. So we're doing this research that's about to be published in a few weeks' time. And we're segmenting the population according to who is most worried about refugees, immigrants, Muslims, the other, and who's most relaxed, and and what other things are going on in those people's minds. And the really interesting insight is how much the people who are most concerned and most want to shut the borders and close their hearts and close their homes and close their communities to outsiders are the most fearful people. Now, this is, this is a question we asked in Germany. I'm using Germany, it's interesting, because it's the most relaxed country in Europe, Germany and Sweden, the most open, and probably know that Germany's taken about a million more refugees in the last couple of years. But still, ask the question, how would you describe um, Germany? The, the answer that is most commonly given um, by Germans today is fearful. And then, naive, naive for being too welcoming of outsiders. Thirdly, angry. Fourthly, hostile. Fifth, weak all of which significantly beat the next ones, which are open, tolerant, welcoming, confident, and optimistic. And as I said, Germany is in about the best state of mind of any European country, so it gets worse. And you can see on the left-hand side there um, the issues that people are most concerned about, poverty and social inequality, immigration, the threat of terrorism, racism, 
and other issues. <clears throat> so there's Germany. Jump into France. Uh, France is, is, is angry. Um, so the uh, question that's asked here, um, what, how would you describe France? 65% of people say worried, 50% angry, and then weak, naive, hostile. <laughs> Welcoming, only 9%. Tolerant, 7%. Open, 7%. Optimistic, 4%. Confident, 2%. There's one in 50 French people currently feeling confident. 3% don't know. Um, uh, there isn't similar research very, in the very recent times in, in the UK, but the UK would be um, somewhere in between those two because France is the most extreme at the, the other end of the, 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 the spectrum right now. But what that's telling you is two-thirds of people are saying in France... You know, the, the overriding characteristic of our country right now is that we're worried. So what lies behind that? Um, what the research we're doing is showing is that that's very much tied to people feeling a loss of their moorings, a loss of their sense of the things that make them comfortable, make them know who they are, where they are. Um, so this is partly why you get the rise of these nationalistic... Um, parties, uh, far-right parties right now, because they're saying, we can bring it all back. We can bring back a sense of belonging to you. We can bring back a sense of the community that you once had. We can make America great again. We can bring you back that sense of security that, that, that you, you feel you've lost. Now, the problem is that that sense of lost security or lost certainty, in part it's mythical, but partly it's true as well. But you just think of people's lives now. They're very different to what they were like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years ago. People used to get a job and feel a sense of belonging with the company they worked for, and they stayed there for a long period of time. Now, half the time people don't even know what company they work for because they're working for some kind of outsourced employment agency kind of place. People don't stay in the same job for long periods of time. They don't know that they want to, and even if they wanted to, they're not confident that they necessarily will be able to because there's so many redundancies all the time. Um, people's sense of connection to their neighbourhood has been largely lost in the way um, that they once would have known their next-door neighbour, the people across the road. Now, you know, far fewer people connect with their neighbourhood, know people around them. Um, they're much less in involved with their uh, a trade union or a a local club, a women's institute, something like that, or a local church. The kind of things around them that used to give them a sense of belonging um, are much weaker. Now, the people who care about this or feel this least are the people in big cities, like us. The people who feel, about it, feel it most, more in suburban and regional communities. Because cities have other things. I mean, and people in, in big cities tend to be more highly educated, tend to, tend to have more opportunity, tend to have more ways to build a sense of identity around, I grow a beard and I'm a, I'm a Shoreditch hipster, or um, you know, I'm into a particular uh, quite exotic sport activity that only you could get by living in a big city, or you know, I'm a rock climber, or whatever it is. There's so many things that can make you part of a community in a big city, but that's much less true outside the big cities. So... What's driving this sense of loss of identity is, is complex. It's jobs, it's communities, it's the economy. Um, but what happens when people feel that, that sense of that loss of identity is they become more anxious and they're more responsive to others who come along and say to them um, that we can bring this back, we can bring this back to you. 
But the part of the message which is dangerous is the message that the way that we bring it back is by defining in much clearer terms who we are and who they are. And one of the core messages in this, in the, the kind of rise of anti-immigrant, anti-refugee racism uh, across the developed world is the message that the way that we can get back what we have lost, our sense of identity, our sense of belonging to a community, is by drawing tough, clearer lines and getting those people out. Because you know one of the reasons why you're losing your sense of identity, because of all these people who've been allowed to flood in, they're not like us, we need to push them out. So one of the interesting things, for example, when you looked at the, the comments people made after the Brexit vote last, last year, was literally focus groups where people said, well, we've voted out. We've voted out. Why are these people still here? Well, I mean, a lot of people would have actually would have probably voted that vote out, vote no to staying in the EU and didn't think that it was a vote to get rid of people who are foreign, but some people did. And that sense of drawing tighter lines and declaring who's in and out is absolutely the thing that's driven the message of Donald Trump. Right, so all the stories like this in the last week, they're talking about a tough deportation force to get rid of all of these illegals who are running around the country. We don't know what they're doing. We need to get rid of them. And an interesting part of what's going on in the United States is the way that churches are responding and saying, we will be a place of safety to people who are being pushed out of their communities, who are feeling vulnerable. So who suffers when communities get gripped by fear? The answer is the people who are most vulnerable and most marginalised, the people who have least defenders. Because, and this is, it's not really about a debate we're having in 2015, 2016 and 2017 about refugees. It's actually more fundamentally how we feel about people who are others. You go back to the 1930s and you read exactly the same stuff was being said about Jews. You go back to the 19th century in the United States and many times since, and the same thing was being said about blacks. You go to Donald Trump six months ago and he was saying the same things about Mexicans before he started talking about the Muslims. It's not fundamentally about any particular group. It's fundamentally about us versus them and drawing lines and fearing the other, fearing the stranger, fearing those who are different from us. So that's the thing that we're seeing across the world and it's really striking that the people who are most fearful are the ones who are most angry, most worried, most hostile to outsiders. But in the spirit of what Graham um, shared uh, a couple of weeks ago, I do think that part of our job is to understand a little bit more of that fear and not simply to give it a label and not simply to say... Yeah, it's a bad thing. So let's ask the question, um, who's benefiting from this fear? Um, why are they trying to make people more fearful? This is, this is why the, you know, part of the reason why we're seeing this growing sense of alienation, this growing anger, this growing racism, um, is because there's a very deliberate attempt, a uh, huge amount of resources being poured into social media, to tell the sort of fake news stories. I'll give you one really practical example because I did a focus group in, a few um, months ago in Germany and we're asking people about how they felt about being German. Muslims have sort of come in, the, the, the refugees. How do you feel about that? And people were saying, we're worried, you know, we think that, like, we're going to lose our identity. And then one person says, well, you know that, like, you can't have pork sausage, bratwurst anymore in nurseries. And we go, like, what? 
So, well, they can't because of the Muslims. I mean, they have so many children too. And they come to, come to the nursery and they don't eat pork. So we can't have pork sausages. What is, it, what is it to be German any longer if we can't have breakfast, if our children can't eat pork sausage? Now, so the weird thing about this was it happened one focus group, ran another one the next day, exactly the same story came up. The more interesting part of it is that it's completely untrue. It was made up about 10 years ago in France. It's a story that constantly gets repeated on social media and people buy it because it's kind of... It, it relates to people's ordinary lives. It relates the sense of loss. What, who are we if we can't have breakfast? <laughs> We're losing. We're threatened. And, and the thing is that those stories, once you get into that mentality, you get very receptive to hear the next story and the next story and the next story. When I was in Australia, I used to work in the Prime Minister's office. One of my jobs was to deal with churches, church leaders. And I had a bunch of church leaders who in most other respects, were quite sane people and quite likeable. But when it got into Muslims, they went totally nuts. And they would tell me all of these things that were utterly untrue. And I'd sort of like, say, say to them, like, have you met any sort of Muslim leaders? Like, they're completely normal. They're, they're like you and me. And they were, couldn't be convinced, totally convinced that we should be terrified and that they were planning to bring in Sharia law tomorrow and every mosque was a centre for terrorism and so forth. And I totally understand differences in belief, but the fear-mongering that can go on around people simply because they are different from us is very scary, because sometimes Christians can be propagating that. So who's benefiting from the fear? It's the people who are driving this message. The next point, what happens when religious communities get gripped by fear? That's really dangerous, and it's something that we're seeing in parts of the United States, especially right now, where instead of having an attitude of welcoming and confidence in welcome and being open and bringing in the stranger, the message that goes all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures to, op to open our, uh, our arms to the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the outsider. Instead of that, they're locking the gates, locking the doors and getting really whipped up into a paranoia around Muslims are coming and they want to take over our country and we must defend our Judeo-Christian ethics, our Judeo-Christian culture, even if that's to the point of violence. It's an incredibly dangerous way of thinking. And if you listen to white Christian radio in the United States, half of the stations are giving that kind of message, not maybe as extreme as what I've just described, but that's kind of distilling it down to, to, to the essence of it. And it's I actually think this issue of otherness really is fundamentally a spiritual issue. I, I think it's more than just a social issue or a political issue. I think that it comes down to the story of creation and whether or not we do believe that we're all created in the image of God. And if you think of even the, the origin story, the creation story of the, the, um, the, the Christian church, building on the story of the, the Old Testament, think of how Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He takes the most hated person in that community, which would be equivalent today, would be to say the Muslim, and he tells a story in which the religious leader, the Jewish, the, the rabbi, walks alongside somebody in need on the side of the road in the gutter, and the good guy is the Muslim. He very deliberately targeted the prejudices at that time. Think of the story of Peter, for example, who has a dream in which God says to him, that he should rise, eat, um, uh, kill and eat all these animals that he said were unclean. And his reflection on it immediately after is, 
God's calling clean the things that I thought were unclean. That means that we, I am called to go to the Gentiles, the people who I thought were other, who I could never deal with, would never eat with, wouldn't approach, wouldn't be a friend of, but in fact what the gospel of Jesus Christ meant in the death of Christ, salvation opened to all, I now have to go to them. It's the beginning story of the, of the church. The church is a movement that changes those dynamics. Um, and if we lose that sense of our calling to be open to the other, to have no boundaries, no drawing of lines, to understand every other person as, as being created in the image of God, we can't be salt um, and light uh, in the world. So why should we... As Christians, why should we be rejecting? Well, let me just actually grab one more, um, one slide, just want to mention, because I think this is interesting just as a scripture that's very specific in that mentality of fear. Uh, This is in Isaiah 8, where um, Isaiah is told uh, by God, don't call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not do it. The Lord Almighty is the one you regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. And I think... That's the direct message. I mean, so part of my story is when I first came to faith in my late teenage years, I was really into reading all books about conspiracy. Um, and this, this verse was really, I mean, the conspiracies of 20 years ago were um, less elaborate, perhaps, um, than, than today's. But I was basically in that mentality. And, and this was a scripture that was really important for me to suddenly realise, like, I'm not given that spirit of fear. I don't need to kind of worry that, like, you know, there's a great plot all around me, um, and we're all being hoodwinked. It's not true. Um, so, uh, Isaiah 8. Jump on to the, 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 the next slide. Uh, so, what, how do we understand and how do we respond um, to this culture of fear uh, around us? Um, I think we have to step back and ask the question, how did Jesus approach a world around him that was very divided, that was very polarised, um, even, in fact, if you think about the, the nature of Jesus' trial, it's a trial that's largely driven by fear. Um, so Pilate's scared of what will the, the Jewish um, mob do if he uh, lets Jesus go free. So instead he lets Barabbas go free and Jesus is crucified. Um, the religious leaders uh, who push for the prosecution of Jesus on the trumped-up charge are driven by their fear of He's going to take away our nation, as they literally say that. What happens if he gets the people behind him? He's going to take away our nation. We're going to lose everything. Um, the same kind of fear driving them led to, 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 to Jesus' death. But think of the, difference way, the different way in which Jesus related to the world around him as one who was welcoming, who was open, who did not fear the other, uh, but embraced the other and embraced that which was different um, and said that, that God had a big heart and that the world is a big place and God had the, the largeness uh, to, to encompass everyone. Um, and he was able to um, convince among his followers to overcome their fear of difference um, and to make them a welcoming community, an embracing community, um, confident of God's love. So what's our role today? If we jump to the next slide... Uh, 2 Timothy says, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind. We're living in a culture of rising fear, 
Um, and uh, that fear is, is very dangerous because it's leading to violence. We're seeing a huge increase in um, race-driven uh, violence in uh, Europe, in the, in the UK it's happen, happening, in the United States it's happening. Um, and when fear grips people, it becomes very dangerous. And when leaders take advantage of that and try to encourage the culture of fear, it becomes extremely dangerous. Now, we don't know where that is going to go, but we have a role as uh, followers of Jesus to speak love into a culture of fear, to understand the loss of identity that people are feeling that's driving their fear, but to show that it's not, you do not recover your country, your sense of belonging, your sense of identity by pushing other people out and by encouraging hatred and division. That pathway is a pathway to destruction. On the other hand, if we can show what the bigger thing it means to be a community that's loving, that's welcoming, to be open to the outsiders. We can demonstrate the difference of the Christian community. We can be communities of sanctuary when others are being persecuted, when they're being attacked, when they're, when they're at risk. Um, we can be very different um, in a time that needs to hear a message of love and a message of inclusion. And, and the exciting thing is, I mean, you know, I, the work that I'm doing in this, um, on these issues it's very much working, not in a church context, but in a sort of wider social context. But it's really interesting. Even countries like France and Germany, they're quite secular countries, time and time again when you're having discussions with people about who's making a difference, who are the welcomers, who's challenging this, people come back and say, it's churches, it's the churches. If we didn't have the churches, we would be seeing none of this. When, when people, when the, the million people came into Germany back in 2015, they were coming into villages all across Germany, sleeping in churches, many of which had been largely unused for a long time. Um, but I think we're seeing this really interesting revitalisation um, that, that the whole world is seeing um, in this moment of rising fear um, that there is this opportunity for us to be in a very different place and make a, make a real difference. Um, so in a time of fear, let's remember that the spirit that God has given us isn't a spirit of fear and timidity, but it's power, love and a sound mind. We finish in prayer. Father, thank you that your arms are wide and open and that although we were once far off, we've been brought close to you. And we pray that we would embody that same spirit of love and openness and warmth and inclusion at a time when we see uh, rising fear and hatred and division um, in our communities, uh, in our country, um, in our world. Uh, let us be um, light in darkness. Uh, let us be um, messengers of hope in a time of fear. For Jesus' glory, amen.